0: So thank you for your questions. This is a question. Yes, I'm very grateful for this online retreat, making it possible to participate. Being aware of the building projects at Amarawati, is it likely that all retreats will be online for the foreseeable future? And this is an important question for all of us. And it looks very much as though that will be the case for quite some time. So what's happening is that when the next big project after the nuns area project is going to be the sala, which is a big building, and because of the sala being, it'll have to be demolished before we build a new sala. And so the kitchen and all of the functions that happen in the sala, many of them will have to happen in the retreat center while the sala is being built, and that's likely to take probably three or four years. At the moment, it looks as though most of the retreats will be online for the next while. So that's a straight answer to this question. It's wonderful that we can do retreats online, at least. And I regret very much that it's not possible for people to come and gather here as we've done in the past. Although I have to admit that looking at the Shrine Room right now, I wonder how we ever managed to get... As many people in as we have in the past, so 50 or 60 people in here is, it's kind of difficult to imagine without us all going crazy. But we managed, didn't we? So hopefully we'll get back to that again eventually. But for now, we can just practice contentment with online unless other options become available, uh, which is quite possible. And we are sort of looking into other possibilities. A retreat in other places and that kind of thing, but certainly as far as the retreat center here goes, right now the male dorm has now become the furniture store, <laughs> so it's full of furniture. And uh, the shrine room where we are now is the recording studio, the uh, transmission station. And uh, I think the female dorm is going to eventually be the dining room, the sort of sala building. So, yes, Anita. So I'm really sorry about that, but this is just the way things are with the other things that need to happen here. I mean, you might wonder why we're doing all these building projects, I and mean, some of you probably know, but the buildings that we have have been on site since 1940, and none of them were built for this climate. And with the whole concern around climate change, there was a sense that we need to find buildings that are more easily sustainable without using an enormous amount of energy so these buildings are gradually being replaced with buildings that are much more energy efficient so it's it's kind of our contribution to some kind of resolution for this climate situation that we're facing right now so it's not just a kind of a nice idea but it's something you know the very practical reasons why Ajmanro decided to have this initiative to transform Amarawati into a kind of eco-friendly village, zero emissions and that kind of thing. So that was the first question. Another practical question, Arjun was wondering about his Noble Eightfold Path work that he wants to make into a calendar. And by all means, send it to me. I can have a look. And if there's anything that I see that's not okay, I can let you know. But as far as publishing it through Amrawati, that wouldn't be an option. What you can do is, you know, there are many ways of publishing things privately. So you find some kind of company that does that and you can publish you know, 10, 20 copies for your friends, something like that would be what I would suggest. But certainly you do send me the text if you wanted to do that. So, is dreaming another form of meditation? Am I still practicing if I accidentally fall asleep during a session and then wake up soon after? Thank you. So, what would I say to that one? If you fall asleep, it's usually just not so much mindfulness there unless you've learned how to do conscious dreaming. So, what I would suggest is that it's not Really, what I would call good practice. It happens for many of us. We have times that we just fall asleep, sometimes if we're very tired, sometimes if we're feeling a bit grumpy or negative. That can also be a reason why we go to sleep, just as a way of kind of shutting out the world, blanking out. But in fact, the Buddha spoke about sleepiness as one of the hindrances, something that blocks awareness so what's important with it is there are many things that are important about it one thing is to celebrate the fact that one's woken up again afterwards you know as I said these things happen but to avoid falling into a sense of feeling discouraged about your practice this is something that happens for you so looking for ways to just brighten the mind to support an attitude of curiosity, alertness, interest. You know, Sometimes if there's a lot of thinking, if the mind is very active and you can't get it to be quiet, that's one of the times that you can just think and think and think and then just fall asleep. So study it, become an expert. The other thing I would recommend is actually the standing meditation that we've just done. The Buddha said he gave some very helpful antidotes to sleepiness. And well, the the final one was just go away and have a good sleep. (laughs) You know, if you're falling asleep, it may be because you're very, very tired and just need a good rest. But the one before that, he said, well, you can try sitting on the edge of a cliff. You're much less likely to fall asleep if you're sitting on the edge of a cliff and would fall over if you fell asleep. So I see standing meditation as the equivalent to that. So it's much less easy to fall asleep when you're standing up. So that can be a good thing to do. Like, you know, if you have set yourself a time to meditate and you find, you know, after the first five minutes that you're feeling really drowsy, then stand up. You know, five, ten minutes of standing. And just that kind of enlivens the whole system. The reason that I often do standing in the afternoon, first thing in the afternoon, is because after having had a big meal, it can be more difficult to maintain that alertness because all the energy goes down to the stomach. So um, standing is a good antidote for that. So I think probably what I would say is, am I still practicing? Certainly you're still, I would say, you're still a Buddhist practitioner. This is something that has happened during your time of meditation practice. And it's something to watch out for and to see if you can find a way of counteracting that tendency to doze off. It's very pleasant and very peaceful and you feel good afterwards, but it's not the same as right mindfulness. And in fact, there is a question here about wrong mindfulness. Arjun, what is wrong Mindfulness. In Buddhism, we always talk about right mindfulness, never about wrong mindfulness. Well, wrong mindfulness is when we are caught up in any one of the hindrances. It's also when it's linked with an unwholesome activity. So one of the things that people sometimes say is that you have to be very, very mindful to rob a bank. (laughs) But that wouldn't be what we would call right mindfulness the right mindfulness is connected with sila with ethical practice it's connected with cultivation of mindfulness of awareness with a view to liberating the heart actually i need to say a bit more about that because it's an interesting one because one of the aspects of mindfulness is actually noticing the presence of any of the hindrances so Hindrances certainly arise. We can certainly at different times experience ill will, negativity, feeling discouraged, despondent. This is part of the path. We all experience these things. Wrong mindfulness is when we kind of involve ourselves with them, when we believe in them too much. Right mindfulness is the mindfulness that is, recognizes the presence of these difficult conditions not feeding them, not encouraging them, but just being willing to patiently bear with them. And when we've actually accepted the condition as it is, when we're actually mindful, present with the condition, when we've let go of the desire for things to be otherwise, then we can actually implement some kind of strategy to brighten the mind, to avoid acting or speaking from a negative, unwholesome state of mind. So wrong mindfulness is being very, very mindful of robbing a bank or doing anything else that is not in accordance with the precepts. Stealing, deliberately harming another creature, deliberately lying to mislead somebody or to cause harm or division in a family, in a community. These are aspects of wrong mindfulness, deceiving somebody, taking advantage of somebody. Many of these things require an enormous amount of mindfulness, but when it's connected with an unwholesome activity, which is against the precepts, then it's wrong mindfulness. Micha sati. So I hope that's a helpful answer to that question. So the next. Shortest question is, dear Ajahn Chandasiri, in terms of furthering our practice and the difference between Siladara nuns in the Thai tradition, bhikkhunis and mechis, so Siladara nuns, bhikkhunis and mechis, I wanted to ask you, what did you find in being a nun in Ajahn Chah's tradition that you didn't think you would find in other forms of ordination? So this is kind of quite a political question, I think, because over the last 10, 15 years, there's been a lot of interest in the position of nuns within Buddhism and the promotion of bhikkhuni ordination within certain traditions, communities, and the fact that within our tradition, currently we practice as temporary precepts. Siladara nuns, which is different from bhikkhuni. Very, very similar, very similar discipline that we follow. In fact, our rule is based on the bhikkhuni rule, and many of our procedures are very closely aligned to that. But the fact is, in our lineage, there isn't that opportunity for bhikkhuni ordination right now. So I didn't really think about anything to do with even being a nun when I joined the community. And I came to the Sangha in 1979 when the community was just establishing itself at Chithurst. And there were four of us who started off there. And I don't know really what the others thought, but I had no sense of establishing something or being anything. I just knew that I wanted to practice and I knew that I was inspired, had a lot of confidence in the teaching, in the way of practice. And I was impressed by the example of the monks. And so I was happy to have an opportunity to live closely with them and to practice alongside them. That was what I was interested in. And it was a long time before I kind of had a sense of being different from any other lineage of nuns. So I didn't sort of go online and look at the opportunities for women to be ordained. That wasn't at all part of my process. I came into this lineage and I have a very um, strong appreciation for what I find here. It seems to be something that is beneficial and I'm curious to see how it evolves. At the beginning, I wasn't really interested in the evolution of it at all. I wasn't interested in the kind of sense of equality, which is a big issue, a big concern nowadays. That wasn't part of my agenda. And that actually came later on. Then I began to be very interested and very concerned because I think in Western culture, it is such a a significant thing in every area of society is creating a sense of equivalence between women and men so i was interested in people having the opportunity to come and practice in this way and they would be interested that they wouldn't come to our community and think oh i don't want to be one of them <laughs> so over the years the community has evolved i mean the fact that i'm sitting here in this position teaching you know is a sign of the fact that it's evolved. you know, When I first started, it would be unthinkable for a nun to sit on a high seat and to be offering teachings. So the community certainly has evolved and it's continuing to evolve. That's what I would say, but very much in accordance with conditions rather than through any kind of political agenda. It's much more a response to what seems to be appropriate, what seems to be needed, So, I think what I really appreciate, what did you find in being a nun in Ajahn Chah's tradition, I really appreciate the authenticity of the practice. My sense is that people are walking their talk. Doesn't mean that they're always bright and positive and always alert and attentive in their meditation, that they're always kind and friendly to each other. (laughs) We live in community with people from many different backgrounds and just as in any community there are times that we have difficulties with each other but what I love about this is that we include that as part of our practice. Everything we do is is practice, we're on the path and so I I really value that. I value the fact that there's a very strong emphasis on keeping our precepts and we have these training rules and the expectation is that we're going to try and keep them. And if we transgress, then we make confession and we begin again. So there's a sense of sincerity. And I love the fact that there's a walking of the talk. (laughs) So those are the things that I find of value within this particular tradition. And, you know, I've met other nuns in other traditions. And, you know, if Things have been different. I may well have ended up in one of the other communities. But since I'm here and receive what I need for practice in terms of material support, in terms of Dhamma support, in terms of opportunity to practice, I stick with this. So I hope that's a satisfactory answer. Here's one. Is a question. I'm very grateful for this retreat today. My question is, what would your advice be about monitoring one's progress, for example, in breath meditation, but also in our practice in general? Thank you. And this is a very understandable question, because the way that we're conditioned is to look for results. <laughs> you know... Right through the whole educational system, you know, we're encouraged to put forth effort and then to get results. And then in our work, in our career, you know, you put forth effort, you get results, you get promotion, you get a rise, whatever it is. You put forth effort, you get results, and you can see the results, and you feel glad about the results, and other people praise you for the results. And interestingly, with this particular style of practice, well, one of the reflections I really like is something that comes in the what's called the Dasa Dhamma Sutta, which is a sutta really for, for people who are monastics. But there are many of the factors that I find are relevant for anybody who's practicing. And the very first factor, like there are 10 Dasa, 10 things that should be reflected upon and the very first one is i'm no longer living according to worldly aims and values so worldly aims and values are about material success recognition being popular being attractive being good at what you do and so on there are many Worldly values, (laughs) status, position, fame. Whereas in our practice of meditation, it's a little bit different. So certainly we need to put forth effort. And if we do keep putting forth effort, focusing the awareness, we can expect that the mind will settle a little bit. It may not settle very much, and it may be the next time we meditate, it doesn't settle as much as it did this time. This is something that can happen. It it can be very, very variable. So you might have a very wonderful meditation and think, right, I'm really getting somewhere. And then the next one is horrible. (laughs) Mind's all over the place. You feel restless and miserable, or you're falling asleep all the time. So it's not really reliable What I like to look for are things like, do I mind as much about different things that happen to me in my life? Am I easily upset by things? Am I as easily upset by things as I was previously? Am I interested in my practice? Do I find a a joy and enthusiasm for practice? You're looking up for these kinds of things because the practice is really working at another level. And although maybe your meditation is horrible, it could be that in terms of practice, it's a very good meditation because what you're doing through that meditation is actually you're cultivating patience. You're just learning how to be to bear with a really difficult state of mind or really uncomfortable restless body. And interestingly, the Buddha, he said that patience is the supreme austerity, and it's really the number one cultivation for us. And it's not just a kind of gritting our teeth kind of patience, waiting for something to pass, but it's a willingness to bear with an uncomfortable, unpleasant condition, just allowing it to change naturally rather than entering into a struggle with it, trying to make it go away. So it's rather subtle, the kind of results that we can experience, that we experience in our practice. So what I would encourage is rather than being too concerned about getting results, what I would encourage is just to keep doing it and try to cultivate a habit of meditation every day. Try to use the moments of the day when you're not doing anything in particular, just to to come to the breath, to enjoy the sensation of the body breathing. Trying to be aware when the mind has got caught into some kind of story about something. So that rather than getting carried away by the story or ideas about things, we come to the present and cultivating a sense of presence, a sense of confidence in the refugees in the buddha dhamma sangha just making the whole of your life your practice these are the kind of things that i would encourage and just recognizing that sometimes meditation is wonderful and sometimes it's very very difficult one retreat I was giving an interview and there were people who were just beginning and there were people who'd been meditating for 20 years. And I asked the people who'd been meditating for 20 years, you know, what their sense of their progress in meditation. And one of them said, he said, well, my mind still wanders all over the place, but at least now I don't mind about it. So to be able to see that this is just the way it is, sometimes the mind is like that, but we can... Still be present, we can still be aware that this is what's happening, we can still be patient with a mind when it's not the way that we think it should be. And then there will be other times when the mind is very peaceful. And rather than thinking, well, maybe I'm almost enlightened, we just think, well, this is a very pleasant meditation. And the meditation comes to an end, and then you get on with the rest of your life. Rather than, as happened to me once, I had a very peaceful meditation. I was feeling so calm, so peaceful. And after it, I felt really resentful of anybody who came to talk to me, (laughs) who came to disturb my peacefulness. I really didn't want to let go of the peaceful state. There was a kind of attachment there. So I don't know if that's quite the answer you were looking for, but I hope it's helpful just to give a sense of how we relate to our practice. You know, it's just something we do as best we can, day by day by day, breath by breath, moment by moment. Just keep going. Lumpur Chai used to talk about the earthworm practice. where You just can turn yourself with with just this moment, just this little bit of earth. (laughs) Process that rather than worrying about getting the whole way through the tunnel and out into the light. Just a little bit at a time, little by little we find that we're growing more settled in our life, in our practice. This actually links quite nicely into another question. In the few hours we've had together, I've been struck by a sense of my normally mundane home being transformed into something that feels more wholesome, much like the feeling of a meditation or retreat center. That's very good. That's wonderful. Please could you say some words about how we can try to bring that sense into everyday life? And I think this is one of the real advantages of these Zoom retreats. Because rather than taking yourself into the monastery, you bring the monastery into your home. So how can we create this environment that is going to be supportive for our practice. And one thing is having a shrine, if you can. Having a space somewhere in your home. Some of you, I think, have a shrine room. If you have enough space, big enough house to have a shrine room, that's perfect to have a special place where you can go and sit quietly whenever you want to. The other thing, having a shrine or having Buddha images or Buddha picture, just... As a reminder, I mean, you can have just one in a particular place, or you can have them all over your house. So you're always reminded of the Buddha, of that quality, that capacity each of us has to be awake, to see things clearly, to know things as they are, as a reminder. So considering what you surround yourself with, your environment, that's very important. Was interesting coming in here this morning because my technical assistant was experimenting with the screen and somehow or other she'd got tuned into a television channel this ghastly program a kind of comedy program i think it was and it was just so unpleasant having that kind of energy in the shrine room it just sort of felt all wrong and I was interested in how, what a powerful effect that had. And for all of you, those of you who have a television set, if you have a possibility of being rather selective about how you use it, you know, what you watch, what you choose to look at, because that has an effect. Our minds are very, very sensitive, very impressionable. So if you are bombarded with a lot of, Bad news or disturbing news or violence or cruelty or, you know, images that stimulate different kinds of desire other than the desire for liberation. You know, these are things that if you can avoid them, I would really encourage that. You know, just consider the effect of the different things that you see and hear in your daily life. And if you can, adjust your life so that you're more surrounded with wholesome impressions, that's a very good thing to do. Choosing the company you keep, choosing the places that you go to, choosing what you do with your senses. It's interesting, sometimes I need to go into London. And uh, if I go in the evening time, in London, everybody seems to be eating in the evening. And those of you who know our community will know that we don't eat in the evening. And so often we're quite hungry in the evening and you walk into London and actually you can't do anything about the smells that come out of all of these, you know, Chinese restaurants, Indian restaurants, fish and chip shops, you know, everywhere you go, bakeries, everywhere you go, there are these, these odors, fragrances. So that's tricky, but you can be careful about your eyes. So rather than kind of looking in all the shop windows and getting stimulated by bright things that you might want to buy, looking at all the people. It can be helpful just to, what we call it like restraint, sangwara, restraint of the senses. So we, you know, we don't get too absorbed into all of the interesting, tantalizing things going on around us. That's another way of considering our life and our practice. One of the things I found was, in fact, before I took the 10 precepts. I used to be, I was a novice and I used to often have to go shopping and I used to usually buy things. You know, I had my own money and so I used to buy all kinds of things. And before it looked possible for us to be having 10 precepts, which is where we set aside our personal funds, we don't use money. I decided just to stop using my own money. And I have to say it made a huge difference because I wasn't always looking around for the best bargain you know, thinking, well, shall I buy a Mars bar? Shall I buy a packet of this or a packet of that to share with my sisters, my brothers? You know, that just wasn't an issue. You know, I'd have a list of things for the monastery that I had to do, but the rest of it was just not an issue. So you might like to consider the possibility of a no money day. Actually, nowadays, people don't have money anyway. Do Leave your bank card at home, your visa card, don't, <laughs> or decide not to use it for a day or two just as an experiment when you go out, see how it works, see what happens, see the effect on the mind. I guarantee it'll be much calmer, much more peaceful because your mind just doesn't go there. Of course, as I've already said, bringing this sense of wholesomeness into our everyday life, a daily practice of meditation, fundamental If you enjoy doing the chanting, you can chant something, you know, a short puja, just even the first little bit up as far as Namotasa, or may I abide in well being. You know, some, if you're in a situation where you can do that, where you're not going to disturb other people, that's a very beneficial practice. You know, and if you have a shrine and if you like to bow, then you could bow to the shrine, light a candle. Do a short puja and then sit quietly for a period of time each day. Just make that a part of what you do, just in the same way as you have a cup of tea and clean your teeth, get dressed, bathe. Just our practice, our meditation. And getting together with like minded people that's another helpful thing because that's how we get encouraged. So if you can attend a, a group or these online experiences, that's very valuable, but some way of just remembering that you're not the only one doing this, that there are others and that we can all support each other and remembering the monasteries, remembering the monks and nuns. You know, we're just ordinary human beings like all of you. (laughs) We have our struggles, our difficulties and we've chosen to live in this way because we find it's a good way to support mindfulness, presence. And if you don't have that interest, at least you can recollect, you can practice alongside us in this way. When you can come and stay in the monasteries, that's, of course, another option for cultivating your practice. So you bring your practice into your home with you know, creating an environment that supports awareness, and you bring the practice into your own being. That's the best thing. So thank you for that question. We're really whizzing through them. Okay, I said I'd go through in order of length. So here's another question. With regard to what was said about right livelihood, please could you say something about what might be a skillful response to a situation where, as far as I can see, the doing of the work itself is relatively harmless to others and doesn't involve lying, but where there may be competitiveness or a lack of honesty between colleagues? This is a very nice question, because wherever we go, there are going to be people who are not keeping the precepts according to our what we consider to be a good way of practice. And it's just a fact, you know, living in the world. Most people don't know about what is practice. For most people, competitiveness, slightly distorting the truth, not being completely honest, and sometimes downright lying is kind of just part of how people live, which is extremely concerning and very tragic. Because when you live like that, you lose touch with yourself. And they say that if you lie to others, then you lie to yourself, and then you're no longer in contact with your own being. You're no longer really able to live your life as a full human being. You're not properly present to yourself. So it's very concerning. And there's not very much that we can do to change that directly. But what we can do is we can at least become aware of these habits in our own heart. We can become aware of them and we can make efforts to transform them the important thing is to be aware of them to be very honest with ourselves which can be extremely humbling sometimes (laughs) sometimes you know as we practice we become more and more aware of the ways that we're not totally honest of our kind of hidden agendas motives for different things of our basic underlying fear like I think a lot of us for a lot of us There's a lot of fear, you know, so we maybe tell an untruth just so that we can be accepted. We maybe exaggerate something just to make a good story. So not to blame ourselves or judge ourselves or hate ourselves, but to celebrate the fact that we're on the path and we want to learn about these things. We want to transform our minds into something that we really feel happy to be living with. Just doing that, Wherever we are, whoever we're with, can be a very strong teaching for others. Not that we're deliberately trying to teach other people, but it can be a very strong sign to others. Many people will not even notice, but there may be one or two people who recognize that quality of truthfulness, of humility, of honesty, of sincerity, of integrity. So rather than trying to change anybody else, can we transform our own heart so that we're at least living carefully and responsibly ourselves, and to some degree, bringing that into the world, wherever we are, whatever we're doing. Of course, one of the things that you may find if you're constantly in this kind of environment, you know, it can be very... Discouraging. It has a very unpleasant effect on the mind being around people who are not honest and who are gossiping and speaking badly about each other. It, it's a horrible thing to have to endure. And so we can see this as an opportunity for cultivating patience, patient forbearance. We can also consider, you know, if there's an option to leave, to look for another livelihood, another job. I mean, with this online thing, I think many people are finding that they can work from home. And, uh, you know, if that's an option, that's another thing that you can consider so that you don't have to subject yourself to being in that kind of environment with, with people who have these ways of being with each other. So it's not that you don't care that you you're glad about the fact that they live their lives like this it's not something to be glad about but a matter of you know thinking about well what's going to be of benefit for this being here you know, and if you can influence others great but if not well that's all right just take care of this one so i hope that makes some sense and is helpful So a couple of questions about meditation. During breathing meditation, I hear outside cars moving. And also I feel that I need to swallow saliva. It is slightly distracting. Is it normal, Ajahn? I can give you a three-letter answer to that. And the answer is yes. Many people find that when they're meditating, they have to swallow In a way, it's easier when you're on your own because you don't have to worry about distracting other people. And you'll find that sometimes in your meditation it happens more and you'll find also that at other times in meditation it doesn't happen so much. So I would encourage you to just notice when it's there and notice when it's not there. Not a big deal. Don't have to struggle with it. My sense is that the more you relax into your meditation, the less of an issue it will be anyway. And the cars, well, there's nothing we can do about cars, really. (laughs) Can't stop the traffic. Here at Amarawati, normally we have aeroplanes going over, but since the pandemic, it's gone very, very quiet, which is actually quite wonderful. But, yeah, there are going to be distractions. We can't make a a perfectly silent environment. And so our practice can be, and one of the things that you can do with this is, is to notice how hearing a car goes by affects you. Like you might just feel totally relaxed and at ease and happily with the breath, and that's fine. Or you might find that every time there's a noise, like earlier on we had a window squeaking, you might have heard it, very nasty Kind of squeaking, grating sound. And so I was practicing just relaxing with it, you know, when it squeaked, just to sort of relax. So you can use it in that way. So you can notice how these sounds actually affect you physically. There's a kind of tensing up. We don't like it, you know, unpleasant sounds. We don't like them. Or maybe the sound of somebody in the next room. We can feel tense. I don't like that sound. I wish it would stop. And what I would encourage you to do instead, because this tensing up is a kind of dukkha. It's a struggle, isn't it? Not wanting things to be as they are. And certainly some sounds are very unpleasant, and so it's normal to not want them to be the way they are. But can we practice making peace with the way things are, even if we don't particularly like them? Can we cultivate a sense of, Willingness to bear with them, to relax around them, to relax with them. Can we do that? It is possible to find a sense of peacefulness, even when things around us are not very peaceful. So I would encourage just cultivating a a willingness to bear with the things that we can't change. It reminds me of a Christian saying, bear with the courage, the patience to bear with the things that we can't change, the courage to change the things that we can and the wisdom to know the difference. So with cars going by, we can't change them. Aeroplanes going by, we can't change them. The window I was able to fix. So I felt quite pleased about that. Second part of the question, I get distracted due to surrounding objects when I keep my eyes open. During walking meditation, so I keep my eyes half open or closed and open from time to time. Is it okay, Ajahn Chandasiri? And I would say, yes, it's perfectly okay. This is like a, a way of experimenting with your practice. And the Buddha really encouraged us to experiment with our practice, to find different ways, to find different strategies for dealing with different things that we experience. So, This is something that you can do. You can also try shifting your focus from the visual field. You know, you can keep your eyes open, but rather than focusing on what you can see, you can bring your awareness into the body. Like sometimes I encourage people to be aware of the feet touching the ground. I mean, you have your shoes on, of course, at this time of year, but the feet touching the ground, the feeling of pressure with each step. And that can be very calming because it takes you away from your head, takes you away from the visual field into your feet. And of course, your eyes are open. They're seeing things. You know, you can see the end of the path, so you're not going to carry on walking or bump into something. But the main focus is with the feet. So you can experiment like that, shifting the awareness between the visual field and the feet. The biggest distraction in walking meditation is what goes on in here, isn't it? The thoughts, the fantasies, the daydreaming, the memories. And for that too, coming to the feet is a very helpful strategy I found. Okay, so I'm always thinking about work and career. I don't think I'm as successful as I should be. And I'm always thinking about how I can be senior and high status with big salary. Work and career related things are my main distraction in meditation. How can I let go of my attachment to work and career and stop letting it be a big distraction? I think sometimes we make work the most important thing in our lives. And we become completely obsessed with it as you've recognized a sense of being over-concerned about your work, about making progress, about getting promotion, about making lots of money. But what I would invite you to do is to really question, is this the most important thing? Is this what I really want? Just to use this weekend as a time for questioning deeply, you know, what's really important? What do I really want? What do I really need? So you might find yourself thinking about work. You know, we might be sitting quietly in meditation and you find your mind starts going Interrupt it with the thought, what do I really want? What's really important? So asking those questions from a place of mindfulness is very skillful. Just really challenging the assumption that work and success at work is the most important thing. Certainly we need to have some kind of livelihood. It's important to be able to live, to have food and shelter. But is it the most important thing? Does it really matter? Keeping in mind the fact that where does our life end? Where is it going? Where are we going? Are we ready? These are important questions. So I'm going to leave I'm not going to go into a lot of detail with that, but just is this the most important thing? I mean, you can play with your mind if you want, and you can imagine what it would be like. You can have a fantasy about the most extraordinary success to be king or queen of the world, the most successful person, the richest, even richer than the richest person in the world. You can play with your mind in that way and think, am I happy? Do I feel good about this? Does this really matter? (laughs) That's another strategy that you can experiment with if you want to. But really, question, does this really matter? Is this the most important thing? What do I really want? My sense is, it's not what you really want. It's not the most important thing. Otherwise, you wouldn't be sitting here right now. So you can play with these ideas. So the final, the longest question. I would consider myself a relatively faithful practitioner. But in the last weeks, I've been growing some resentment towards some of the male sangha and a bit towards the Buddha, for the discrimination of women in this tradition, particularly in terms of ordination. I try to see this as just a thought and as a convention, but it keeps coming up and puts obstacles to my practice. Do you have any advice in terms of better understanding or working with this resentment? So, Obviously, this is something I've pondered deeply for a great many years. And long ago, I realized that the Buddha didn't hate women. It wasn't that he disliked women. That wasn't the reason that for all of our monastic rules about, say, separation and all of that, it wasn't that women are are bad uh, or that men are bad or that anybody's bad. But these rules, for our protection. Not because there's anything bad about women or anything bad about men, but because in nature there's a very strong attraction. This is how nature works. And until we're fully enlightened, or at least very far along the path, men and women are going to be attracted to each other. And sometimes women to women, men to men. But there is going to be, for many people, there is this attraction. Just on the physical level, physical attraction, it happens. It happens to lay people, it happens to monks and nuns, it's normal. And so the Buddha recognized this, he recognized the power of that, the effect of that on our minds. And there are suttas where it talks about the most powerful distraction for men or for women, and just being, you know, the, this sexual energy so the rules are partly to protect us there's less occasion for these desires to be stimulated not like you know going to a you know sort of very sexy movie or something like that where you know deliberately you go to get sort of titillated but not like that but more just as a protection also as a protection of the reputation of the community, because people can often think badly, you know, they can make wrong assumptions if they see people relating to each other with a degree of intimacy that doesn't seem to be appropriate. So within the monastic community is a very clear separation, as I said, for protection and protection of the individual from their own Desires and energies and protection of the reputation of the individuals and of the community. So that's why some of the teachings, if you look into the scriptures, some of the teachings are, you know, they can be quite shocking to people who are not familiar with this tradition, this way of practice. When his foster mother, Mahapajapati, wanted to be a nun after her husband had died, and her family had grown up and many of the princes and many of her relatives had been had gone to become monks she and many of the other women in the palace wanted to become nuns you know they wanted to have a similar opportunity and at first the buddha refused which is a story that you've probably heard and which can seem quite shocking and again it's something i've contemplated a lot but when You look into the social context, you know, at that time, 2,600 years ago, uh, the relationship between men and women was very, very different. The position of women was very, very different. You know, women were actually the property of their husbands or their fathers or their brothers or their sons. (laughs) You know, that's how they were seen. It was very rare for women to have any kind of independence. So when Mahapajapati asked, you know, to us nowadays, you think, well, it's an obvious thing, it's a no-brainer. Of course, she should have that opportunity. But she was actually putting the Buddha into quite a difficult position because his order of monks was fairly newly established. It was just finding its place in the society, you know, establishing its rule. And suddenly here was Mahapajapati, his foster mother with, they say, 500 other Sakian princesses, these very powerful women asking to be admitted to his community. So what was he going to do? So she had to ask several times before eventually he agreed and he established certain conditions which laid down the relationship between the monks and the nuns. Conditions which would enable the women to have a a good training, to have a, a suitable conditions for practice as far as possible, and to maintain a, a suitable relationship with the male community. So nowadays, if you look at these, you think, oh, this is terrible. This this you know it, and many people sort of say, oh, it must have been written later on. It it can't be true. Well, I don't know when it was written. I don't know whether the Buddha actually established these, but Thinking about the situation he was in, the situation of the time, you know, I'm willing to say, well, yes, maybe he did. So we can feel resentful about that, that the women didn't have such a, in some ways, their position wasn't as, could seem to be less respected, not quite equal, not quite fair. Or we could feel well isn't it great that he allowed that he enabled a situation for women to be able to train like this so it's obviously a difficult and painful question for many men as well as for many women, you know if they come to the monastery and if they you know see that they have a sense that the nuns are in some way junior like. I mean, the only sign now really is that we go second for the alms food, that we go second in line. So the monks go first and then the nuns go. And that's the only really obvious thing now at Amarawati. And when the new sala is built, then even that will have will go because we'll have separate places where we go to receive our food. So nowadays uh, here at Amarawati, Ajahn Amaru is very interested in creating more of a sense of equivalence Rather than a kind of very stark distinction, so as nuns, we learn how to show respect to the monks, but equally, what we find now is monks are very respectful of us, so although at times I felt distressed about the situation for nuns and the way things We're evolving. It's been a difficult journey, but now I really have a sense that that was just part of what was needed (laughs) at the time, and that we had the teaching, the way of practice to enable us to respond in a good way to what was painful. The bottom line is that. When we look at, you know, when we're perfectly present, when we're perfectly liberated, you know, whether you're high or low, whether you're a man or a woman, is completely irrelevant. You know, as we're sitting here quietly, you're not thinking, I'm a man, I'm a man, I'm senior, or I'm a nun, I'm a nun, I'm junior. You know, we don't think like that, you know. Ultimately, it really doesn't matter. But we're talking about the conventional level, of course. And I think it's been important for me to realize that in some ways it does matter you know, on a conventional level. And yet there is a another way of looking at it which goes beyond the convention. And if we can just really align ourselves with that, then things change. The convention has changed. Like at the beginning... As I might have said earlier, you know, I was completely junior. I was completely at the bottom of the the end of the line. And that was, I didn't mind one bit. And then over the years, you know, gradually, little by little, the conditions have changed. You know, and it wasn't even clear whether we would ever have a, a kind of any kind of higher ordination. And then we did. And now it's evolving. So, um, I think we need to learn how to celebrate what we have and cultivate a a glad heart that we have the teaching that can show us how to go beyond all of this. Every convention is going to have its unsatisfactoriness. That's just the nature of the world of conventions. They're always a bit clunky. Language itself is a bit clunky. But as we practice, as we find that refuge within, that place of peace, that place of letting go, then we have a chance to experience something that is really wonderful, really sublime, and where these things have much less significance than we tend to give it when we're not recognizing the Dhamma, the truth of this moment. So, I hope that's a bit helpful and hasn't kind of added more confusion or more unhappiness or resentment. I mean, I do empathize because it's, it's not an easy topic, but I think certainly for myself, being in a situation where we can practice and where there's a real interest in supporting women in their practice, providing conditions, providing the requisites for us to practice teachings, opportunities, and allowing for you know just a, a gradual evolution, gradual change, so that in the end there's a sense of mutual respect and kindness between the communities of monks and nuns. This feels like a real blessing. So I think I've been through all the questions. I spoke about the right concentration one before. Just a little kind of PS to this. Can Vipassana be successful for a novice in the path to finding chana? I mean, insight is, Vipassana is fundamental for liberation, understanding, seeing the nature of reality, that things are changing, unsatisfactory, not who and what we are. and When we're able to practice with the breath, calming the mind, settling the mind, little by little, we may experience times of deep calm, peacefulness, jhana. But what I really encourage is just present moment awareness. So enjoying when the mind is calm and remaining present Patient when the mind is not calm. Letting go of the struggle for things to be otherwise. So that's a lot to digest. I hope it's not too much. Okay, is there somebody who wants to ask a question
1: from the floor? Yes, Azan. I just wanted to share some of my experience, you know, maybe, I don't know whether I'm doing the right thing or not. I've been meditating for many years. I am a medical professional, so it's a busy life, but still I managed to do one hour. It is gradually increasing from 20 minutes to 30, 30 to now one hour and one and a half hours I stay. But the thing, it changed my meditation practice was like, I tend to listen to Dhamma Talk by Azan Shah when I do meditation, and that has really, really helped me a lot. And that really showed me how the right way to do, right way to think. And I can reflect on it while I'm doing meditation. And really, I can sit very nicely with concentration, concentrating what he's been teaching. And likewise, I also follow Azan Amaro's and Azan Sumedhu. Recently, I'm doing Azan Anand's Dhamma Talks as well. He also tells in a very um, simple way of doing meditation. And as you said, you know, because of COVID, one really good thing happened was like, all dharma, all the monastics came to my house, like I just need to open it. And in YouTube, you get everything and you can hear everyone's dharma talks. That has really, really improved my understanding and that has changed myself as well. I don't know whether this is the right way to do, but for me, you know, like it has encouraged me to get up early in the morning, Those days I used to get 6 o'clock in the morning to, you know, because I started 7.30 in the morning to go to work. And at least 10, 15 minutes I sit and do meditation. Now I get up at 4 o'clock so that I have a bit longer meditation and then listen to the Dhamma talks. And that has really encouraged both my husband and me. I don't know whether this is the right way to do or not, but really helped me a lot. Good.
0: That sounds very good. I love hearing your enthusiasm. Thank you. Uh, for the practice and the fact that you're finding that you want to do more and more and and <laughs> that your husband is also interested.
1: All yeah. the time. Yeah. Also yeah. Thank you very much that today I learned how to do standing meditation. I have never learned standing meditation before and that really helped because I cannot do walking meditation because my mind always goes here and there in walking. I can't concentrate but when I was walking today I just did the standing meditation. That really helped because you cannot stay away in because you're thinking how to stay straight you know that has really helped me to concentrate in my mind thank you very much
0: okay very good that's fine thank you. that's fine you're on the right track
1: <laughs> okay